This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, oh my gosh, it's a special one. I have the pleasure of having Daniel Shanks, the former White House food and beverage usher, as a guest on today's podcast. Now, Daniel's road to the White House began as a fledgling college student in Richmond, Virginia in the 1970s. Now, he set out to hitchhike cross-country, as many did back then. His travels took him to the wonders of Napa Valley, where he stumbled onto the mysteries of viticulture. He started working in restaurants and developed a growing appreciation for the passion of the vintners, the beauty of the vineyards, and the cycle of life that lent a unique identity to each vintage. He lived for 20 years on a vineyard in Rutherford and absorbed the sounds, smells, and taste of grapes. In 1977, he was part of the opening team for Domaine Chandon, a winery in Yachtville. He was hired to be Metordi at Chandon, the winery's first fine dining restaurant. He rose to the position of restaurant manager and had the pleasure of overseeing the extensive wine program featuring only American wines. Pretty interesting. Now, in the late fall of 1994, Daniel received a call that would change his life from the usher's office of the executive residence of the White House, inquiring if he would like to be considered for the position of food and beverage usher. Well, of course, he jumped at the chance. He arrived at the White House for his interview in December. He met the chief usher as well as with Mrs. Clinton's social secretary. The rest, as they say, is history. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. I am so thrilled that you are here. You have probably one of the most unique seats in the history of Windham that there could possibly be. Scott, it's good to be with you. I am very sure it is the most unique position, something I wasn't prepared for, learned and evolved to enjoy and love to talk to you about. Well, you know, I have to start off now. Most people's perception of the White House is of this shining beacon of the best of American dining and probably the finest wines in the world. But you have a little bit of a different perspective. Why is that? Well, the White House is, as I came to see, a very, very unique entity. It's unlike any other place, um, difficult to categorize or give any labels to. It's a home, yet it's not. It's a restaurant in a sense, but it's not. It's a catering facility, but it's not. It's a, a stage, definitely 24-7. And it's someplace that we, the chefs and I, as, as we probably will discuss, came in from a restaurant background thinking we would apply our principles and techniques and hope to achieve the success that's expected at the White House. Um, came to learn it's a very, very different place. It is basically an old Southern home. And I mean that all in a basic sense, where it was for years and years, the quiet home of the president and his family entertained. We did events, but it really was not someplace that was publicly viewed and publicly critiqued. The staff, which is, they're astounding, astounding people, but they have been there sometimes 20, 30, 40 years. The Form uh, the gentleman who was the storeroom manager when he retired 
about six years ago, he started when the first flights commercially happened between New York and Miami, to give you some perspective. Wow. We had people that had been at White House for 57 years. The infamous clock guy who took care of the clocks, the electrician, had been there for 52. The White House honors and cherishes the privacy and, and integrity of the operation, and they tend to keep people on for a long period of time. And in hiring, they go to find people that know the White House, know the people that have worked there, and hire for that comfort and that level of security rather than going out for the professionalism needed to perhaps change the practices or expand its operations and redefine it as we've come to know in fine dining in our country. You can imagine the changes that have happened in fine restaurants over the last 40 years. Try using the same paradigm that worked then and try to do it now. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, you come from a fine dining background. I mean, you were the general manager at Shandon, one of my favorite restaurants in Napa. And and here you show up at the White House. I'm what what were you expecting on day one? <laughs> well, that from was from that background. Yeah, um, I was honored, no question. And if, uh, also, let me mention, Scott. It's really nice being able to talk to you about all this. It's kind of fun. Um, I was honored to be offered the position from all people across the country. There was a committee that was assembled by the White House, and my name was put in. And I was glad to come back and have an interview. I thought. What can I add? I mean, my God, this is the White House. It's the paradigm. I figured I'd come and maybe get a year in, learn, meet some interesting people, experience some great things, take that knowledge, and then go and expand my talent somewhere else. Um, it was quite a different experience. When I came in, it, it's hard to describe. We use standards in the restaurant business that is predicated upon every day working on things and defining things and pushing them higher and higher. And you have various techniques for doing that. You then walk into a place that is just a revered institution, but change is not an operative word. Change is not considered a positive word. Change is something that might potentially lead to some error or mistake that might embarrass the family or cause some sort of discourse that was absolutely the lifeblood of the resident staff who worked every day to make sure that didn't happen. So basically, I was put in a position where my job was to do something that wasn't desirable or conducive to <laughs> oh, wow. the long-term good of the White House. It was a so, pretty unique place. So you come from where change every day is is almost expected, and now you're in a position where change is a four-letter word. In essence, yeah. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. It's not to besmirch at all the resident staff. These are people that have been there for, as I said, a long period of time. They have acclimated to three, four, five, sometimes six different presidential families. That's an amazing ability to change and adapt. And they have great heart. But again, it's not a place that's been open to the outside where ideas come in. Walter Scheib, who the Clinton administration also hired just prior to me, was the first American chef. That was a great move. And I was the first person brought in from the outside based on my professional expertise and reputation rather than whom I may have known or who at the White House knew me. And I was the first person that was basically requested by the administration to be hired by the chief usher. Prior to that time, the chief usher had done his own hiring. And again, that, that's just a paradigm change in the transition of the White House and the entire complex. So I came in as this unknown to everybody, and I came into finding myself in restaurant terms and immediacy. 
as you knew in restaurants, if you don't fix a problem, you have empty seats the next day in our competitive industry, you can't afford empty seats because there's too many restaurants. That was not the paradigm at the White House. It's like, take your time, sit down, get to know us, understand us, and then maybe we'll listen to your ideas. So where does the actual direction come from that, that determines any particular administration's approach to hospitality and, and events? And I mean, I'm really curious specifically about state dinners. Well, it's a classic blend of tradition and evolution. The administration comes in and they have their ideas. They are of the moment, shall we say, and they know what they want to do. They've just come off a campaign, which is usually their first experience of being somewhat White House-like. And in the campaign, they go to any facility that they rent or acquire, and they define all the terms. They come into the White House, and, and we're wide open. There, you know that famous story of when the family transition changes, they leave in the morning and go to the Capitol for the inauguration and the lunch and then the parade and come back in. By the time they've come in, we've moved out one family and moved in another family where the new president feels at home in the circumstances and the environment and the comfort and the, the items in the house. That's the kind of achievement the house does. But the administration comes in with their own set of ideas and run into the White House and its residents and its ideas of what tradition has been, what's been successful, how we do it, um, to great praise because we're not judged critically on a food and beverage basis, just on the total evolution of the event or the moment. State dinner is a time practiced tradition that has done really well, but different now than it used to be. We used to do platter service where people would, the chef would send out platters, the butlers would pass them around and people would serve themselves family style. That is not the way modern dining goes. So this is the sort of time warp I walked into. It was an evolution in the sense of what the White House is and how it does. Wait, wait, wait. Back up for a second. Are you saying that state dinners, they would just drop platters of food on the table and let people pass it around? Family no, style? No, Scott. Not, not quite that graphic. It was a little okay. more. <laughs> they would bring a beautifully prepared platter that a first lady in past administrations would work with the chefs to organize and have the appearance. And then people would serve themselves off of this platter, being given a set of, you know, fork and spoon to put their food on. Now, this is a very traditional family style service that has been done for eons in formal dining, but had already been bypassed by what we know as the plated service and the more presentation based service that is modern dining. And is that what it evolved to during your stay at the White House? Yeah, the chefs worked with um, the Clinton administration and, and myself worked with the butlers and we worked to evolve that into a different presentation. Um, it's just people are not so comfortable serving themselves anymore. They're not used to it. You can imagine going into a formal dinner somewhere and a butler comes up or a waiter comes up and presents you with a platter and has you make your own plate. It was that kind of good intent, bad situation that made for some awkwardness in the environment. And that's yeah, what the administration thing. wanted to go. Plus from a chef's perspective, um, and you get me started on this, I can talk quite a bit, so I'll try to be terse. But from a chef's perspective, you make pinpoint food trying to do what we consider to be the epitome of what the quality of American cuisine to be. You send out a platter, depending on how people choose off it, by the time we get towards the end of a 10 person table, 
what the platter looks like is not necessarily the most presentation-based food, plus the temperature, the whole style of what we're trying to serve is not very conducive to it. Right. Yeah, well, it's a good thing I was uh, never invited to a state dinner because I could tell you by the time I got to the 10th person, there wouldn't be anything left. (laughs) The person across the table to hurry up. Uh, (laughs) I probably would be using the tongs. And we needed to come up with a better solution. The administration was very generous in coming up with ideas. The chefs were very generous and butlers in evolving their practice. But this is the world I walked into. You know, where a chef is sit back there making pinpoint presentation on a plate and he wants it out the door on the table in front of the guests before they can put it on the pass. Well, well, Daniel, this is a wine podcast. So I I have to ask you probably one of the most basic questions is how did you decide what wines would be served at each of these dinners? That was an intriguing, probably the best, most enjoyable part of the whole job I had. I had an entire country in front of me as 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 offering such a range of wines and areas. What I had to do, like any sommelier will do, is to determine, put my preconceived notions of fine dining aside. My job is to determine what is the best wine to put in front of that clientele at that moment that's going to achieve the total success of the experience. Ego has nothing to do with the White House. We are there to make the family look good, to make the guests feel comfortable. Now, you think of in terms of fine dining and great restaurants, unfortunately, they appeal to a sort of a little sliver of society. The White House appeals to the entire nation. Every event, you can have such a diverse range of guests, some people that are used to fine dining, some that aren't, some that are used to what we consider great wines, some that are not familiar with wine, period. My job was to present, along with the chefs and the butlers, what we do in America in a manner that makes them comfortable. So to do that, you, you choose wines that are full flavored, um, comfortable on the palate, good body, good texture, and you serve them to the people there based on what the cuisine is and who the guests are. But like you said, there's a plethora of wines that you had access to. Well, I guess the first question is, were you limited to only domestic wines? Absolutely. I came out of, out of Chandon where we had developed a philosophy anyways that we would serve actually only Napa Valley or, or surrounding county wines. I introduced wines from other areas to give people in the Valley at ate there a chance to see how magnificent our wine spectrum is in this country. I remember right before I left, I had served the Horton Viognier out of Virginia, which was like heresy in Virginia, but people loved it. I mean, in, in Napa Valley, people thought it was a great wine. It gave them a chance to see what's happening in other parts of the country, which they experienced, but not in their home turf. Um, when I came in my job, I was excited to look at our country and go, we have more viticultural areas, more variety. We can grow so many different varietals and grapes with different flavors. There's always some person in some area that has found the right place, the right time, the right varietal, and makes a really stunning bottle wine. Even though that state may not be, you know, viticulturally renowned, for me to serve that wine in that environment at the White House where people enjoy it and the people back in that state get the acclaim for it is what the White House is all about. We are to showcase the entirety of our country. So to serve only United States wines was definitely not in any way a limiting factor. There were no, some people that were yeah, saying, right. why did, why, the king of Spain was coming. People would write, well, why didn't you get a great Rioja to serve? Well, why? He lives there. You know, what purpose am I doing that? My job is to have our guests coming in 
show the benefits of what this great country is. Just curious, was there any ever pressure to serve a particular wine from a particular president? Did somebody ever just say, hey, I really like X and I'd like you to have it there? Or was it really just up to you? Actually, I was really honored um, after nine months when finally the chief usher decided I may have an idea what I'm doing and let me order the wines. Um, kind of like the plea program of the White House. Not a single family ever interrupted or sent down, this wine must be served, that constituent must be served. I was really honored because I somewhat in my heart expected that being such a political environment. There were notes that would come in from constituents that would be filtered into the administration. They'd be passed on to me. I sure would take it into consideration if it's a wine that would fit into a venue. Sure, then everybody wins. But what I also did when a new family came in is that I would go out and research their background, their, their home area, what's available. Uh, when W, when President W. Bush got elected, I did a lot of work researching Texas wines because it just makes them comfortable. It gives them an association. And there were found a few I found that were really good and we served them and, and it was a nice synthesis, but that's the kind of work you do. The White House is theater. It's not really just dining, Scott. Uh, the whole, how you present it, how you do the decor on the table, what the flowers look like, what the foods are like, what the wines are chosen. So you're talking about the flowers and the decor and all of the beautiful uh, trappings, I suppose, that kind of go along with all of this. But were you ever responsible for helping or assisting families pick out wines for less formal occasions? Yeah, that was an absolute joy. Um, after establishing rapport with the families that come in and each of us in the residence we are totally devoted. We are just amazingly sensitive to every nuance we pick up from them in a short period of time. If you're the president of the United States and your family, you have two floors in the entire world that is your private area. You walk to the elevator in the morning and there's large burly men who are absolutely dedicated and charming and wonderful, but you're surrounded by them the rest of the day. It's a very difficult existence and I appreciate anybody who even wishes to be in that position. What we try to do is to make those two floors the most warm, welcoming, comfortable place that gives them a little bit of respite from the responsibilities they have to do. Part of that in my job is to learn with the butlers how they like things served in their private quarters, which is very different than how we do on the state floor, and how to serve items for them that are comfortable and make them happy. As you establish that rapport, you start getting you know, questions filter down from the family. I have this guest coming in or I'm going to this person's house for a dinner. I'd like to bring a bottle of wine. And in that case, yes, you very much work with them to give them little gems that you may have in the cellar, though we don't sell her much in the sense. Traditionally, there's always a little, couple of wines you keep over from events that little time become very special. So yeah, we try to be there to provide every function they need. So I understand from a wonderful book that uh, a friend of yours and a friend of mine wrote, Fred Ryan, uh, on the wines in the White House, that the cellar is actually very small. I am surprised by this. That's exactly the look on my face when I showed up on day one. My image, like all of us, you know, we, we deal with this paradigm, this institutionalized concept of what the White House is and, and what it should be. I cherish the fact that America holds that concept so solid. The people who work in the residence, the 95 people that take care of that on a daily basis, work as hard as they can to make that a reality, not just an image. 
well, as I'm, you know, driving cross country from California with this angelic vision in my mind of what I'm going to run into, I'm filled with Jefferson cellars and old wines and the things we're going to be able to do. Shandon at the time I left, I had over $200,000 in wine inventory. So this is in the world of Sami is what, what you're used to working with as your data bank. I came into the White House and after a couple of days of finally becoming conscious of where I was, because it's really an amazing transition, the chief usher took me down to this door and opened it. And it's a very large closet. It is really? very much like the largest linen closet you've ever had in a home, but it's still a linen closet. And it's because of the circumstances, uh, again, not being a food and beverage destination. And that's an important distinction to bring to everyone. The White House is not there because we are a great dining room. Well, we do great events, but it's not because of the food and the beverage. When people come to the White House, they are coming to be proximal to the president of the United States in that whole incredible cacophony of power and elegance and all these factors they barely think of the food and the wine. And yet America, when we're looked at from the food and beverage industry perspective, we are expected to be on the top piers of what restaurants have. So I walked in thinking I'd have all these great wines to choose from. What had happened traditionally, going back not that many administrations, if they needed a white and a red, a butler would go to a local store and acquire the wines. Get out of here. No, I'm serious. This actually happened. I have done an anthology of the wine service of the White House going back to Eisenhower's time. Um, fortunately, using some old records that were in the accounting office because no one had really taken the time to document historically the menus and the service. You know, they knew who the people were from a protocol point of view, but they never really took the time to document what had been served and what accompanied um, since the Kennedy, well, since the Clinton administration, when the curator's office became very dominant of course, working with the White House Historical Association, everything that happens there now is documented. It is a, an internationally accredited museum, which is as it should be. But back before then, there weren't even records kept. But in working off of these older records, I see a lot of the wines are served all the way back. And it was pretty I amazing. Wow. I can't imagine uh, Jackie Kennedy sending the, the food and beverage usher over no, to Schneider's Capitol Hill. The Kennedys actually drank very well. They did. <laughs> And let me also debunk the myth that President Nixon was poured great Bordeaux while the rest of the people in the audience drank lesser wines. That was not true. I've looked at the menus and there were phenomenal wines served and they had people in administration, I'm sure, that acquired them. Prior to me, what happened that really benefited the White House when President Reagan came in as governor, he had worked with um, David Berkeley in Sacramento, who had a great wine store, very, very amazing individual. And he had acquired wines in Sacramento. When they came working with the chief of staff, Devers, David continued to supply the wines for the Reagans as presidential family, and then followed up with the Bushes and was still in operation when the Clintons came in. That gave me the path. That gave me the precedent that was able to allow us to roam and be free in what we choose. But no, there, there were some wines in certain times that weren't really good. So I, I had wines. The family needed something for small dinners where this really segues a lot, but there's so many facets to how it works. If there was a dinner coming up, even say a state dinner, wines would come in predicated on what was thought was needed. Nothing was bought on spec in the fact that we think this will mature in five or six, 10 years and become a great wine. What we served is what we have now. 
that kind of baffled me a little bit, but it is a government facility. That's what the government thinks. They are not designed to pay to lay bottles on their side to rest in quiet peace. So what I did to change that a little bit, where we would have ordered maybe three cases of white wine for a state dinner, I make it four. Well, accidentally, we're left over with a case of wine. That case of wine would then go into the cellar, where I knew four or five years later, I'd have something that in those more elegant moments when a family is a small private experience up in the family residence or a small working dinner or lunch, I could then pull out wines that are slightly more mature, more graceful. I have to say, Daniel, I'm just completely blown away. My perception of, I guess, the elegance of what I thought the White House would be and the wines they would serve, you're really... Uh, opening up, uh, not, probably not just my eyes. I'm sure the listeners too are kind of saying, tilting their head like I am right now, going, "Wow, I just cannot believe this." Uh, I'm going to ask, and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. You, you certainly don't have to answer this. I hope you will. What is one of the most unique wine pairings that you were personally responsible for while you were uh, at the White House? Uh, Scott, that is, one in, in- that is considered being put on the spot, but it's okay. The best wine pairings that I can imagine are when they added to the experience of the moment. And a lot of times this maybe wasn't even noticed by most of the guests. Take, for example, we did a state dinner for Chirac. Well, what I did for that particular dinner and what we did as the chefs did also is try to look at the country that we're honoring in our residence and tie the two countries together. That's part of the theater. Um, the, the calligrapher, you know, will make it a certain feeling on the menu. The florist will develop certain floral patterns that are comfortable to the guest of honor in their home country. The chefs would take food products and spices and herbs and sauces that are prevalent in their cuisine and present those in the manner we serve them here. So what I would do, I would look at the countries that have ties in the case of Chirac, um, I served at that particular meal, the Berenger Reserve Viognier and the Zaca Mesa Syrah. At that time, two cutting edge wineries dealing with these new French varietals. We'd also leave notes for the first family where at the meal, they could say, you know, please let me mention to you that in your honor, we have served varietals that are from your country, that this is how we do them here. And that's the theater. That's the great benefit of the White House. At a meal, you pull people together. And you can have members of Congress over for a meal, and there's that stilted awkwardness in the beginning of politics. By the time you get to the main course with a little food, a little wine, a little time, you start to see the shoulders relax, the chairs move up, the laughter starts. All of a sudden, one person may tell a joke, no matter how bad it is. Another person gets involved, and pretty soon you're what we all know in fine dining is a bunch of people enjoying themselves at a moment. That's what we try to transition to in the White House. That's the key to our success. It's not so much the Michelin stars. It's not the reviews from magazines. It's simply that we try to tie all of those unconscious components into a whole that makes for a better experience. Was there one president versus another that you found to maybe be a little bit more open or easier to work with? And I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot and you probably have 
you've taken some oath of confidentiality that you'll take to your grave. But I'm just curious if you were there for quite a while. I think you were there for four administrations. Is that yeah, six correct? years of Clinton's, eight years of Bush, eight years of Obama, and nine months of Trump. That was no commentary on the Trump administration. Uh, you met my wife, and I had spent right. 25 right. years. I did what I had set out to do. That was the time for us to get married and retire and go live our lives, which we're doing quite well. Thank you. Um, the question you're asking, Todd, is a question a lot of people ask, you know, who are your favorites? I obviously have my politics, and that involves everybody, it seems, now in the world. I can tell you personally, and I mean this in all respect, I'm not evading the question because I kind of like conversation. There's not a single one of those four families that wasn't charming and gracious and in their own way really care for what they do. It did not get to know the Trump family that long. I can tell you um, to the chagrin of what I think his politics are, the nine months that I was there, they were as nice and polite and concerned about how they treated the White House as any president I served. So it's like, it's like you have four different plays going on in one weekend and you see each one. Each play is great, but they're all different. They all have different personalities. And each one, by nature of most of them recently being eight years in length, brings a whole swing in society into their new family coming in. And that's, that's part of the joy of transitioning. Well, Daniel, I have to say, you should probably run for president because that was one of the most politically correct answers I think I've ever heard. Well, it was also trying to be very politically honest. There's a... And I am, I am genuinely relieved and, and very pleased to hear that you had that experience with all four administrations. I think that's actually wonderful. Given the political climate, as a matter of fact, I think it's astounding and refreshing. The job nobody should do, to be honest with you. Um, one analogy I make is that a president can be in a meeting, say, in the Oval Office, and something happens in the world. By the time he gets out of it, the press wants him to have an answer for it. We, we, we expect the president to have answers to everything immediately. It's almost like the ultimate father figure. It's something that in our days of fast-paced communication is totally impossible, and yet they take on the burden. And they take it on with great intent and, and great purpose. You see the aging process they go through in a short period of time. We kind of joke in brief moments with the presidents about, well, taking his toll on you. Isn't it? You have to admire whoever gets in that office. There is nothing only there was one time and I know I'm rambling a lot, but I really love this subject. There was one time that there were four living presidents. I think this is right when Obama came on President Obama and President Bush brought in all of the living presidents and you could see them in the hall where they met formally. They, they knew that they, that they were a fraternity someday to be, not just a fraternity, but nobody could understand them, even no matter how different the politics were. They, they understood all went through, and you had to admire them for doing that. So out of curiosity, did they stick around for a lunch or a dinner, and did you serve a particular wine? No, I do not recall at that particular time. I do not. I think it was designed just to come in and do a meeting in the Oval Office and a chit-chat. So I, cool. I don't specifically remember serving me at that point. Well, I have to say that you probably had one of the most unique vantage points of any sommelier in the world. And I, I'm fascinated. We could go on and on and on, but we have to get to my favorite part of the podcast, which is what's in your glass? 
you have had such a wonderful and unique vantage points of some of the greatest wines in the United States. There's got to be a couple of wines that I know that you've opened today that are special to you. So Daniel, tell me what's in your glass. What's the first one? Well, Scott, again, I'll try to keep this brief, which is not my forte. Um, as I translated what you were looking at, I, I, there's no way I, I have been very gifted. No question. The opportunities I've had the years in Napa Valley, the winemaker friends I've known, the international travel, the respect I've been paid on those travels. I've tasted wines that people just will never have a chance to taste. And there's also, you know, low cost wines I've run into that a certain moment, a certain time in a certain place just were magnificent. So I kind of didn't take that approach. I kind of read what you said is what were two wines that defined me as a wine professional? And I'll try to keep them really simple. The first one, um, and I'm drinking with you at this time, is a Heights Cabernet. In 19, well, about 1977, when Shandon opened and we started developing the wine list, we were just starting to get introduced to the 1974 California Cabernets, which were earth-shaking for their time. They were the first really 68, 70s were good. 74 really leapt a forefront. And after tasting the Sydney and Mondavi Reserve and Diamond Creek and Stag's Leap, I tasted the Heights 74 Martha's Vineyard. And it just took me to a new world because there was a component there that made it incredibly different than any other wine. And upon learning later and walking the vineyards, Martha's Vineyard is surrounded with eucalyptus trees. And the Martha's Vineyard, though being a distinct clone now, it's got its own caricature, had absorbed this eucalyptus mintiness. And it just, for me, showed the synergy of grapes and environment and climate and the moment and the place. And ever since then, I've often felt that as a wine buyer, if you really want to buy a wine or focus on it, you really need to go visit, walk the land, smell it, taste it, talk to the people. So that was my first great experience. Um, I do not have the 74 Heights Martha's Vineyard in front of me, but I am drinking the 95 Heights Cabernet in your honor. The second one is a little bit more personal, but gave me a really fullness inside myself as a wine professional. In 1985, I made, well, I'm, for a number of years, I made wines at home living in the middle of a vineyard in Rutherford. And they were you know, poor efforts with not much time and poor location. But in 85, um, Dr. Seps in Storybook Mountain allowed us to go up and pick two big full garbage cans full of his first pick, Zinfandel, off of his gorgeous mountain vineyards. And I made a 95, an 85 Zinfandel out of that. A couple of cases, I took six bottles and made them beautifully packaged, put them in a wood box and gave them to him as a thank you. And it totally went out of my mind. In 2005, I was visiting with a winemaker friend from Oregon who I invited down. He was very knowledgeable in the industry there and had not much experience in Napa Valley and invited her to come down for a couple of days and we go around and tasting and talking to people. Dr. Seps offered to have lunch for us on his beautiful home overlooking all of Napa Valley. It's right above Calistoga. And we had a great time tasting, walking through the cellars. Finally, at the end of the meal, he put some cheese on the table and he brought out a decanter and he poured four glasses for us and said, try this. And I tried it, not knowing at all. I figured maybe this is a barrel sample or something he had done. And I tasted this wine and it was just euphoric. 
it was stunning. It was mature and round and clean. And I looked at him and said, Jerry, what is this? And he said, that's the last bottle of the 85 Zinfandel you made. Oh, oh my gosh, you're kidding. I'm sitting here as a make it in your garage if you have time to step on the grapes because you're so damn busy wine person who was gifted some of the greatest grapes in the world that I never gave credit to. And I was able to taste a 20-year-old wine that I, as a person, had made. Now, that's not self-congratulatory. It just really, at that time, exploded in front of me the sheer passion and joy of winemakers around the world who will taste something they made 20 years before and, and shown what they knew, what they sensed, what they felt it was going to be. And that, nice. that, that was really cementing for me my admiration and devotion to the wine industry. There's no 85 shanks left. Sorry. <laughs> I, I have had the pleasure of having a lot of guests on the podcast who have told me their aha moment, but I think that one takes the cake. Yeah. I did a pretty good job for a waiter. Yeah. yeah. And the, uh, and your, and the 95 Heights, by the way, wonderful. I actually have several bottles of that because I have a, a child that was born in 95 and it was one of the wines I collected on his behalf. And I recently opened up a 2005 Heights that was just stunning and probably one of the most, one of my domestic aha experiences for me personally, where I realized that California really had the potential of making great wine was the 85 Heights Martha's Vineyard. Uh, oh, just yeah. a, a stunning, stunning wine. And well, you're bringing back some great memories for me as, as well. So Martha's Vineyard is so, to me, emblematic of the people that owned it. The, the May family that were just, they were amazing people. Anyway, absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Great to share the memories with you, Scott. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, this is, this has been wonderful. It's been a very special treat for me today, Daniel. Thank you so much for making the time to be with me today on the podcast. A lot of fascinating stories. And I got to tell you, I can see a, uh, a part B interview in our future because I think there's a lot more that we could talk about. Uh, it would be fun. Let me add only one thing is as people listen to these or other discussions I've had, I try to get them to understand the difficulty and the dedication the 95 resident staff put in to keeping the family safe and warm and comfortable and pleased and feeling in some part like they have a home. They're, they're really, that's the best phenomenal experience I'll take from the White House. Sounds good. And again, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time. Well, that'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. In the meantime, do good, drink well. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. 
Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.